Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What makes you happy? Studies show happiness is an important factor for health and well-being. Today, where we live, we find out how researchers measure happiness and what factors contribute to our emotional state, factors like exercise. And later, we'll hear how parents can help their children become happier. And we want to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, of course, there's an app that measures happiness. Joining us is the director of trackyourhappiness.org, which has been around for more than a decade. The database includes participation from people from more than 80 different countries. Matthew Killingsworth is also senior fellow at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So would you say you're generally a happy person? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I generally am. Uh, but but one of the things I've I've seen in my research and in my own life is no matter how happy you are, you're unhappy some of the time. That's sort of part of life and part of being human. So uh, you know, I I <laughs> nothing's ever totally perfect for me either. Even though I spend all of my time studying this. Well, that's good to hear. So when we talk about happiness, you know, what is it exactly, and and how can it be measured? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, I think people were skeptical that happiness was quantifiable, was measurable, was understandable. And it turns out it's actually not that hard. Uh, A lot of research the last few decades has shown that simply asking people how happy they are on like a numeric rating scale is remarkably effective. Uh, We have a variety of evidence that sort of shows that that's tracking with something that we would really call happiness. Um, I measure it in my research using an app, as you mentioned. So uh, I collect this kind of real-time data on how people are feeling by asking them how they feel right at this moment on a scale ranging from very bad to very good. And then they answer that many different times. uh, And that sort of gives me a signal of uh, how they feel across the moments of their life. I was surprised that your app has been around for more than a decade. You know, when you think back, uh, when we think about measuring and, and getting data, uh, the idea that technology can make it easier, right? Where you're just flipping <laughs> through on your phone versus asking someone maybe to journal. <laughs> we might be mm-hmm, good maybe mm-hmm. the first couple of days. And then, you know what, you get tired of, of doing that particular activity, Matt. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we we started this project before there was even an app store. Uh, So I was a PhD student at that time and uh, just sort of realized, you know, there's this amazing method that many of the most famous people in the field have said, this is the best way to measure happiness. But then when I looked in the literature, almost no one was using it. And so after the iPhone was announced, I kind of thought, hmm, maybe we could do this, but on a much bigger scale. So I ended up uh, with a collaborator creating this platform where we've now collected I mean, 
what by some measures is, you know, one of the biggest databases of happiness in the world. So walk us through for uh, people who haven't used the app, uh, you know, the particular questions you're asking and, and how you're getting them to respond throughout the day. Sure. So the, the basic methodology I use is something called experience sampling, uh, originally invented by this guy, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, he is the author of Flow and a number of other books and has made huge contributions himself. Um, in his original research, he actually used a radio tower and flipbook. So people would get pinged by a radio tower to a beeper or a buzzer, and then they'd answer some questions on a little paper booklet. That was, I think, back in like 1978. Um, so I sort of have the the modern version of that. Uh, on the iPhone, I basically send people little pings, little notifications a few times a day. And what I want them to do is basically take a mental snapshot of how you're feeling at the moment just before you were pinged. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you some questions about that. So I ask them about their level of happiness. I ask them about uh, what they're doing, who they're with, what they're thinking about, uh, a lot of factors about what's going on in that moment, because that's kind of the the lens on what people's real experiences are like, uh, is something it historically has been really hard to get data on. So I've been kind of building up this really rich image on what people's daily experiences are actually like. And then I also connect that with a lot of sort of broader variables. So I measure things like income and personality and your job and other things that are, uh, you know, we can understand through a less intensive methodology, but I can plug all of those things together and say, you know, well, why is a doctor happier than, you know, someone in a less rarefied profession? And so why? Like I can dig into their experiences uh, as one example. Again, you're hearing Matt Killingsworth here on Where We Live, director of trackyourhappiness.org, as we learn more about how researchers study happiness and the factors that contribute to our emotional state. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so because this has been around for a while, you mentioned this uh, large database of information mm -hmm. from people all over the world. So tell us, what have you found? Many things. Uh, I mean, it would, in fact, take a multi-hour discussion to even <laughs> dig into a portion of them. But I can tell you some of the some of at least my highlights. Uh, I mean, one, as I mentioned, is that when I'm actually following the sort of variation in how people feel, uh, I find that you know e even the happiest people are unhappy some of the time. And so uh, I feel like there's a risk when we talk about trying to be happier that we feel like success means being you know permanently happy. Uh, and that's just not only not realistic, as far as I can tell, it's literally impossible. Uh, so I, I think people should just kind of keep that in mind. Um, I would also say uh, there's no one thing that makes uh, everybody happy. It's sort of the accumulated result, a lot of different factors. Um, at the same time, the things that make people happy are very systematic. I mean, it's part of the reason that we know it's so measurable and understandable is, you know, when we look, and certainly when I look in my big data set, uh, you know, what is what is causing the differences in, in people's happiness? Uh, you know, it's it's very quantifiable and, and systematic across people. Um, even though there are lots of factors that matter, some things matter much more than others. And so, you know, the big question that motivates my research is figuring out of the sea of all of the things that can move happiness at least a little bit, what are some of the most important? Uh, and then I think, you know, for individual people, the question is, of the things that are important, what are the things that I can really change in my life? And hopefully when you put those two things together, you can actually 
you know, improve the quality of your life. So the, the recipe for su success and happiness, not necessarily looking at wealth and health, but more day-to-day -day choices? It, it's a combination of both, but a, a lot of the uh, sort of conditions of our life, uh, income, occupation, the state we live in, uh, you know, the kinds of things that we think about our long-term goals in life matter, but they don't actually matter that much. Uh, so when you try to understand why are some people much happier than others, uh, it, it does tend to be the result of kind of the choices we make repeatedly. Uh, you know, I, I can remember the days of like set it and forget it cooking. Uh, and we kind of imagined if I could just, you know, create the conditions of happiness in my life, I can sort of check those boxes and then I'm done. And that doesn't really work. I mean, that will make a little bit of a difference, but it's really what do you bring to your life every single day? What do you bring to it repeatedly uh, that make a difference? Again, we'd love to hear from you about how you approach the idea of happiness, how you measure uh, when you're in a positive emotional state. What are the factors that contribute to your life? 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, one of your findings, Matt, is that our tendency, our brain's tendency to wander can detract from our feelings of happiness. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. I just find this result absolutely fascinating. So part of what's amazing about having this kind of real-time uh, measurement of people's lives is that I can measure stuff that we can't measure in a, you know, once-a-year survey or a one-time survey. So I asked people to not only tell me how happy they were, but tell me if they were thinking about something other than what they were currently doing, uh, which you could call mind-wandering or slightly more technically, you could call it task-unrelated thought. Uh, and what I found was that uh, while people were going about their lives, you know, working and eating and watching TV and talking to their spouse and doing all the things that they do in life, when I asked them, are you thinking about something other than what you're doing? About half the time they said yes. Mm. So there's this huge focus uh, on this kind of internal mental life that isn't really about what's going on in the moment. Uh, and it turns out that that is a a huge sort of independent determinant of happiness. I mean, it's one of the reasons you are sort of constrained in how much happier you can become just by changing the external conditions of your life, because so much of what moves people's happiness around is what they think about inside their heads, which often has nothing to do with what's going on in that given moment. And so what I found was not only that people are engaging in this mind wandering or task unrelated thought about half the time, but they're also much less happy when they do that no matter what they're doing, even when they're doing things that are very unpleasant, they're still actually much happier, just focused, getting fully engaged in whatever's going on. You know, if you're cleaning the toilet, just focus on cleaning the toilet. If you're doing the dishes, <laughs> focus on doing the dishes. If you're doing your work, focus on your work. Uh, when people sort of turn inward to this, you know, sort of uh, thinking about the non-present, that is usually a, a sort of detractor from their happiness. This all makes sense, but it sure is hard to do, Matt, um, the tendency for us to think about the past, uh, past things we've said or done or scenarios versus, as you mentioned, <laughs> focusing on, on the task at hand. Uh, absolutely. So I, I think there are a, a few, it, it, just like being happy, it's not something we could ever, you know, be perfect at, uh, but a few things to, to think about that could be helpful. Uh, one is just to rather than thinking about what not to do, uh, 
thinking think about what to do, which is I'm going to fully engage in whatever I'm doing. And again, you won't do that perfectly, but if you just think about how do I kind of bring 100% of myself to whatever I'm doing at this moment, uh, I think it's likely that that's going to make you more rooted in the present. Um, you could also uh, choose tasks that are more engaging to you. So I find there is some variation in the rate of mind wandering. When someone's like taking a shower, they're more often than not mind wandering, like 70% of the time. Uh, whereas when they're doing things that are really engaging, the rate is much lower. So if you wanted to be rooted in the present, you can also think about, you know, what are the things that are really engaging to me, meaningful to me, enjoyable to me? Uh, those are going to be sort of encouraged, more present focus. And I would say the the third thing is the thing that people probably think of first, which is just being aware of where your attention is, noticing when you're sort of uh, your thoughts are straying in a direction that isn't productive or helpful for you and trying to bring them back. I think people can do that. Uh, they can get better at it. You have to practice. Uh, you'll never be perfect. Um, but I wouldn't just try to control it. Uh, I think sort of focusing more on the, you know, promotion rather than fixing the problem uh, is probably more effective. You know, when I was thinking about this show coming up and how we talk about happiness, how it's measured, what we can do to boost our happiness. And sometimes it feels like, you know, this is a first world problem, right? To be occupied <laughs> with how we feel, because we know, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, there's so many factors uh, related to a person's uh, life. Uh, and, you know, depending on what country you live in, you know, they can vary widely. So when you think about the database you've, that you have, the information you're getting from people from, you know, more than 80 countries talk about those variations yeah so i i think i would i i would disagree with that in certain ways so i think i think everyone is trying to be happier i think if we think about you know maybe someone who if we think about someone who's living in a very impoverished situation you know maybe in some other country you know we we might say it's sort of it's more obvious in some ways what might make them happier so i i think everyone to some degree is really just trying to pursue happiness. It's a question of how do we do that? And I think, you know, the the wealthier a country becomes, the sort of safer and more comfortable it becomes, it, to some degree, it becomes more challenging to figure out how to do that. Uh, but I mean, in my view, it's the reason I choose to study this. It's it, my view is that kind of the reason we're doing almost everything to some degree is to really make people happier to improve the quality of our lives. Um, but I, I do think it, the, but the part of, that I really do agree with what you're saying is that it's kind of a first world problem for it not to be obvious how to be happier. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're <laughs> really just struggling to, to survive day to day, you know, it, it, it's clear that what you'd really like to do is to not have that struggle. Uh, once maybe you're, you know, having a food on the table, you have a basic level of safety and comfort, you know, now your intuitions are no longer so great about helping you figure out how to be happier. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, scientific research like this helps. Um, but it's also uh, all of these factors add together. So all of the things that I would say are important for, you know, people's happiness, even the richest, most, you know, privileged people, those things are basically just as important uh, for people in the most challenging circumstances. It's just that there are other things that we could also do to to make their lives better. Again, we'd love to hear from you about happiness, how you measure being happy, what factors contribute uh, to feeling happy in your life, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mike's calling in from Ashford. Mike, what did you want to share? 
Oh, um, it kind of follows on, on what your guest is saying. I'm recalling back to when I was in my early 20s, and uh, I had gone off to a good college and then become depressed and dropped out and was back home living with my parents and unemployed. And, and yet, because I had tons of free time, I... I got in very good shape, and I was working out with a team where I got uh, a lot of positive feedback, and I was cooking great meals with an unlimited budget, and 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 in a, in a sense, I was living in paradise, but I was deeply ashamed and felt that I had failed in life, and and I experience both those emotions at the same time and Mike That's how are you comment. and how are you doing today Mike when you look back at that point in your life uh, and where well, you are today I'm, I'm, yeah I'm 60 years old and um, I'm retired so once again back unemployed uh, I think I've, I've become a lot more um, uh, kind of even tempered and I I do try to be more momentary in, in my thinking and I do try to when when I'm getting large thoughts of you know climate change or or political collapse I try to to get myself back to the beauty of the world and and that's working pretty well for me well, thank you, Mike, for sharing that with us here on Where We Live. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sherry's calling in from Danbury. Sherry, go ahead. Oh, hi. I actually am having trouble understanding your whole show because I think it's enough to just be. It seems to me a burden to be happy. Why, why isn't it enough to just be? Sherry, that's a good point. Um, I think sometimes when we look at uh, happiness and, and thinking about the factors in our life, you know, how it can help with longevity and health. And so, Matt, how would you respond to our caller? I mean, I, I think particularly as a scientist, you know, what I'm trying to figure out is to the extent that people want to be happier, I want to help them understand how they could do that, you know, through data and sort of systematic study. Uh, it's really... It, I, I don't think people should feel any under any pressure to be happy, however. Uh, and I do think there's a there's a balancing act. On one hand, you'd like to set up the you know the sort of circumstances of your life to be, you know, create the best life that you could, but you don't want to be thinking about it all the time. Um, so it, it's it's a little bit of a of, of a paradox, I think. So in some sense, I really agree with the caller that you want to just kind of live your life and not be sitting around thinking about you know, <laughs> whether I'm as happy as I should be or something like that, you really don't want to be thinking about that. But at the same time, if you just make a lot of choices that make your life worse, you know, it, I, I would argue that's, you know, maybe not such a great thing. So somehow we want to sort of put these two ideas together. That, that's at least how I think about it. Mm -hmm. So for listeners who are interested in your research, Matt, and how can they participate? And when we think about data, especially today, you know, how do you maintain privacy? Good question. So people who want to participate can go to trackyourhappiness.org and sign up for this research project if they'd like. Um, and they'll also get some sort of insights into their own happiness by virtue of participating. Um, 
privacy wise, I mean, we, we, we take a lot of precautions. Uh, so we, you do a bunch of things technologically that I won't go into that, that make it as impossible as it can be made impossible to have anyone sort of access the data inappropriately. Uh, and as we use the data for research, we basically never share their data with anyone, uh, with with any sort of external parties. We never use it for any other purposes. It's just for for academic research and trying to understand, you know, if we want to make human life better, how do we do that? And before we let you go, Matt, we talked about some of your main findings, one um, mind wandering and how that impacts us. But you also found another factor that can help people when they think about happiness is exercise. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, when I look at all of the different factors, one of the most important ones is physical activity. Uh, it can be, you know, formally in the form of exercise. It could be, you know, in the form of basically any physical movement. Um, but that is a factor that is far more predictive, for example, than how much money you make uh, and far more predictive than, than a lot of other factors. So uh, getting some kind of, you know, basically, if you can have some significant amount of movement and activity, which you could consider exercise seven days a week, if you could, uh, that would be really beneficial. Uh I, I want to say, you know, every, every additional day of the week that you exercise might be equivalent to like doubling your income, something like that. Uh, it, it's really a large effect. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure to hear from you about the research you're doing. Matt Killingsworth, again, director of trackyourhappiness.org, also senior fellow at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm going to work on my mind wandering. Thanks, Matt, for your time today. <laughs> Absolutely. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to continue talking about happiness. First, uh, Where We Live producer Sujata Srinivasan spoke to happiness researcher, another researcher, Laurie Santos, who's a Yale professor of psychology. She also hosts the podcast, The Happiness Lab, the new season out today. And nearly 3.7 million people have taken the happiness course from Santos. Here she is talking about what stands in the way of our ability to be happy. I think one of the big things that comes in the way of our happiness is just the misconceptions we have about what it means to feel happier. I think we think that happiness is something that's just built in, you know, you're born to be happy or you're not, or that it's really due to our circumstances, you know, so we try to go around changing our circumstances. But that misconception means that we don't take action in ways that really will work for promoting our happiness. What we know from the happiness research is that simple changes to our behavior, for example, getting more social connection, getting more exercise, getting more Sleep. Those things have a huge effect on our well-being, much bigger than we think. There's also lots of evidence that simple changes to our thought patterns, becoming a little bit more grateful, becoming a little bit more mindful and in the present moment. You know, even trying to fight some of the negative thought patterns we have, you know, like the spots where we're not really compassionate with ourselves and so on, those kinds of changes can make a huge difference for our well-being. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about happiness, and we'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We heard from our earlier guest, Matt Killingsworth, director of trackyourhappiness.org, how he talked about the importance of exercise uh, to our feelings. And for more, joining us now on Zoom is Maggie Downey, owner of personal euphoria, Pilates, and fitness. She's also author of Keep Moving. Maggie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I know when some people hear exercise, they roll their eyes, and they don't really want to be thinking about the things they should be doing, but you prefer the the term movement. Tell us why. Well, absolutely. You even heard Matt say it. He said it could be traditional exercise or physical activity. Uh, I think a lot of times we think of exercise as this grueling, painstaking activity that we don't want to do. And that's not what we need to be happier. We just need to move more. We need more physical activity. So whether that's a leisurely walk or working in the garden or playing with our kids, we just don't want to be sedentary. And researchers have found, looking at multiple studies, that it doesn't take much As much as 10 minutes a couple times a week makes people happier if you move more, but it's a sliding scale. So the more you move, the happier you are. When clients seek you out, uh, what are their expectations? Uh, Do do they feel like uh, moving more will make them happier or are they thinking about long-term goals of, of health and longevity? Uh, Well, I think what I hear from clients most of all as to why they commit to exercise or get involved is they might have come to it because they want to get in better shape. But then why they stick with it is that what I hear often is they feel better. And I think that's both mentally and physically. If someone comes to me with back pain and that back pain is reduced, they're going to physically feel better and that's going to make you happier, right? So when we feel good in our bodies, we feel happier in our minds. They're interconnected. We can't separate those two. And as you look at people as they age and we lose mobility, it's one of the biggest complaints of seniors that they can't move. And then you can't do the things you want to do anymore. You lose your independence and your freedom. So it's really our mobility that gives us compelling and happy lives. We talked about technology and, and all the apps that are, that are available uh, earlier. And so when we think about, you know, all of these fitness trackers telling us to, to you know, get so many steps in a day, you know, how should we approach movement and the, the outcomes uh, daily, Maggie? Well, I do think that can be person dependent. If you are very goal oriented or competitive, those trackers can work for you, right? Like I want to beat my steps from yesterday or I compete with my friends and family and I want to get the most steps on any given day. 
But even new research has shown that, again, it takes less than we thought. So for years, they were saying 10,000 steps, and now they found 7,000 steps is enough to get you the same gains they thought 10,000 had gotten you. So I do think you need to find movement you enjoy. This concept of no pain, no gain is a fallacy. We don't have to work harder or have that more grueling workout. You have to pick movement you enjoy so that you do it. And that's a broad spectrum. It can be playful. It can be silly. It can be, again, not traditional exercise. Um, they recently did a research study and compared people who did Tai Chi to square dancing and people who remain sedentary. And the Tai Chi group and the square dancing group equally agreed that their lives improved by doing physical activity. Neither ranked higher. So it really is a matter of finding the activity you enjoy. Movement should feel good. It shouldn't feel bad. That doesn't mean it never has to be a challenge, right? Sometimes if we want to make certain gains, we have to challenge ourselves, but it shouldn't hurt. It, shouldn't, it certainly shouldn't hurt in a bad way. You can join our conversation as we talk about happiness and some of the factors that lead uh, to feeling better, including movement. And my guest, Maggie Downey, owner of Personal Euphoria Pilates and Fitness, author of Keep Moving. The number to join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And we look back at the last two years uh, when people uh, were in lockdown or didn't feel comfortable leaving their house. Uh, because of you know all of this public safety guidelines, but people did find solace, Maggie, in just being outside and hiking, and and it just I guess speaks to how that can just improve your your mental state. Well, I think absolutely. I I think one of the great things that Governor Lamont did in the past two years was never close the state parks, and in fact, he sometimes spoke from the state parks and encouraged people to go to them because we do know movement is so important for increasing our happiness, reducing depression, reducing anxiety and stress, which we've all felt over the course of these past two years, added stress. And so movement's very helpful. And moving outdoors is actually key. In fact, they know you're more likely to move longer and say it feels better if you exercise or move outside in what they call green space. And if you're near water in what they call blue space, you tend to exercise even longer and say it feels even better. So there is something about where we move and when we move uh, encouraging us to move more. And I think that's partly because it's a little bit distracting. It's a beautiful place. So we want to spend more time there. There's that fresh air, especially if you're in Connecticut, right? You're getting great fresh air. I'm curious about your personal journey, Maggie. You mentioned water. I think of uh, sometimes people have limitations. Maybe they don't know how to swim or they're not good swimmers. That's something that you actually um, experienced. Uh, tell us how you approached uh, swimming. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a little kid, I was signed up for swim lessons and I got chronic ear infections. So I never learned to swim. And I had wanted to uh, do a mini triathlon and friends were like, oh, you'll be fine. Not everyone does the traditional crawl, which was not true. Everyone did the traditional crawl except me. I kind of did the breaststroke with my head above water. And after that, I was like, oh, I need to take swim lessons. But I was embarrassed because I was an adult and I didn't know how to swim. And so I found a friend who also didn't know how to swim and we took them together. And so I think that's key is finding a friend who wants to commit to something with you is really helpful. Uh, it makes you feel less alone. You can have fun together. You get the story together. And then in six weeks, I'd learned how to swim. I, I certainly wasn't an expert, but what was interesting is here I was an adult, as an adult learning a whole new type of movement. 
And it's become one of my favorite ways to exercise and move. It feels phenomenal. It's very easy on your joints. It works the breath incredibly. And I find it's a little meditative. Once you get in that groove, you're kind of lulled into your own mind. You know, with the new year, uh, many of us are starting fresh, or we think we are with <laughs> maybe some new activity or our new goals or hobbies. And so when you think about um, offering suggestions for listeners who want to uh, include more movement in their lives, could you offer us a roadmap? Yeah, I would say, again, find a friend. If you find someone you commit to moving with, uh, they can be your accountability partner. You'll schedule times to show up together. And let's say you're someone who doesn't love moving. Uh, then you can kind of say, well, I'm really getting together with my friend and we just happen to be moving. So that can be useful. Also, start slow. Again, movement doesn't have to be hard. Research shows that even if you move slower, you will make the same gains. You might just be a few weeks behind someone else. But if that doesn't matter to you, that's okay. So start slow so that you don't hurt yourself and get derailed. Mm -hmm. Include variety so that you don't get bored. And so that, again, it's fun. You're always learning something new. And also pick something, a, a goal or a challenge, and that can be broad. Maybe you do want to do a couch to 5K. Maybe you want something very practical. You've learned, you've noticed you can't get on the floor as easy. So you want to be able to get up and down off the floor again. But pick some, some kind of goal that you're pretty sure you can achieve. Because if you pick a goal that's way out of reach, it gets us frustrated and we, we, we tend to get derailed too. So always pick a challenge that you think you can actually manage within like a three-month period. We were talking with Matt earlier about our brain's tendency to wander, and that can lead to, to negative thoughts instead of being present in the moment. Can you talk about how you approach breathing and when you're thinking about the, the movement that we're doing and, and how to stay focused? Yeah, well, I, I think two things. I think, you know, Matt and the caller Sherry actually agreed a little bit about not worrying about happiness, but just being uh, which we know is that that's what he mentioned, being present makes us happy. So you can just be and be happier. And our breath work can be a guide to that because it gives us something to focus on. Um, I do always like to say when we talk about breath work, if you are tuned in right now, listening to where we live, you've nailed breathing, you figured out breathing, <laughs> you got it down, you're not breathing wrong. But we can practice deeper breaths. We can change the duration of our breath. We can focus on breathing through our nose. And there's so much endless benefit that enhances our life that it's worth focusing on breath work uh, as a trend for movement. Because when you take a deep breath, so much of your muscles and body is actually moving. So it's a great tool for someone who's getting back into exercise. And I think one thing to remember with that is while you can be attentive, focus on your breath, notice where it's going, try to change it and make changes. If your mind does wander, recognizing your mind is wandering is not failing, right? You're, you're being present when you notice your mind wanders. That's what our minds do. So then notice it, say, okay, is what it's wandering too important? Do I need to be attentive to that? Or can I come back to my breathing now? So I think we need to, whether we're trying to get back into exercise or work our breath and be more mindful, or if our ultimate goal is to be happy, we we have to be gentle with ourselves, right? Not Not stress out about whether we're doing enough, but check in and be happy with what we're doing, which is ultimately, I think, Sherry's point a little bit, too. You've been hearing Maggie Downey here on Where We Live, owner of Personal Euphoria Pilates and Fitness and author of Keep Moving. Maggie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And keep moving.
Coming up, how do we help kids become happier? What do you do as a family that adds to your happiness? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We've been talking about the science of happiness and the steps, literally, that can help improve our emotional state. Uh, Barbara writes on Facebook, happiness are those fleeting seconds in between hideous disasters. And David shares, keys to life is movement. I'm a physical therapist, and this is what I promote when I work. And this is the best day ever. <laughs> Thanks, Dave, for listening. Now, what about kids? How are they doing? And what can be done to make them happier? On Zoom with us now is Dr. Hansa Bargava, Chief Medical Officer at Medscape and author of the forthcoming book, Building Happier Kids, Stress-Busting Tools for Parents. Hansa, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. So, uh, definitely the book uh, is coming out in just a couple of months, Raising Happier Kids, something you were working on prior to the pandemic. So so tell us what led you uh, to think about this and, and write this book. Absolutely. And, and as you said, it was prior to the pandemic that we as pediatricians were seeing a surge in mental health issues in kids, uh, increased anxiety, depression, and even suicide, unfortunately. And, you know, the pandemic has done nothing but to elevate that problem. And I'll also add, Lucy, that even with my own kids, I saw it as a pediatrician and I saw it as a parent. And, you know, um, what, you know, basically how our lifestyle and, and just the overscheduling of kids and not having enough time to pause and rest was what what it was doing to our kids. So if you don't mind, share what you experienced. Uh, obviously, you're a mother, and uh, when we think about um, you know overscheduling our kids, uh, what you thought about in your life. Yeah, absolutely. So personally, you know, I unfortunately fell into that trap myself, even though I was hearing about other kids having anxiety and stress. And um, it's very easy as a parent because you're man managing so many things all at once to fall into that trap of, well, you know, so-and-so neighbor is doing this and so-and-so person at school is doing this. So why am I not doing this? And it's almost, I call it the keeping up uh, with the Joneses parenting style. And, and, you know, that is what happened to me personally as well. I had my daughter, um, you know, signed up for many activities. We were just running around on the uh, doing this and that and my son as well had practices and sports and and you know one day my daughter just woke up um in the morning and said I don't want to do anything anymore and I said what do you mean and and this is a, this was the child who basically really enjoyed things and she says no I I'm I'm quitting everything and <laughs> and that's you know and that made me pause and my son had similar things to say so we put you know we kind of restarted reassessing and that's when I started thinking about gosh you know our society is so plugged into doing being productive and the go, 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 and it's probably adults and kids, uh, and, and that we just need to step back and, and take 
and what really, really matters. And I'll just add, Lucy, I was listening to, you know, the other two speakers you had today, and, and I would just add that not only is happiness important, but it also has a direct impact on our physical health. And so for, as a physician, I really felt it was important to find ways to actually um, to actually teach parents and families uh, the importance of that because of not only mental health, but also physical health. When you talk about mental health, you know, earlier you mentioned uh, in the pandemic, and we've talked about this on the show, um, the mental health challenges, especially that children uh, are facing. Um, so can we talk more about that and, and how to help them? Um, because as you mentioned, our society, we're plugged into always feeling like we have to be busy all the time and being yeah. involved in so many things. And so if you take the time uh, to have maybe more downtime, you know, what is most effective when we're talking about children? Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm so glad you asked for the pandemic. I think the pandemic has been devastating to our children, completely devastating, because if you can just, I mean, children and kids and teens need some structure and something solid, and it's been nothing but that, right, with pivoting from online school to masks and vaccines, and now yes school, and now no school, and now no activities, and now yes activities. And so that's been hard on parents, but definitely on kids. And, you know, I think that this is the right time to kind of reframe not just the overscheduling, but also, you know, the importance of having that family structure. And, you know, I point to hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years of humanity, right? And we all, no matter what country you come from, no matter what religion you might follow, or if you don't follow religion, whatever spirituality, it all goes back to having those structures to allow rest of the mind and the to allow the pause and the structure around that. And the other area that's really important, fundamental for us as humans is actually what, what I call the three C's. Uh, the three C's are connection and community and compassion and, and of course, care, care about ourselves. And so those are fundamental in, you know, not just being happy, but just feeling stable and grounded. And, and so, you know, in my book, talk about those circles of care and the three C's as well as the four P's, which I can also talk to you about as well. Again, you're hearing Dr. Hansa Bargava here on Where We Live. She's Chief Medical Officer for Medscape and author of Building Happier Kids, Stress-Busting Tools for Parents. Uh, you know, one of the themes that we keep hearing in this show is that we can control, we have control over our happiness. And our producer, Sujata Srinivasan, spoke to another researcher, Cassie Mogulner holmes She's a professor at UCLA who studies happiness and really highlights the role of time and how we spend our time. This is what she shared. These circumstantial factors like income level, like marital status, even like how attractive you are, these things have a significantly less um, strong of an impact on our happiness than many of us think. The things that actually um, have a bigger impact than we think and what I'm most interested in as a researcher, because it's what we can control, is what are we thinking about and doing in our daily lives? Um, how, in particular, my research is looking at the role of time. How do we spend our time in ways that are more enjoyable, in ways that um, 
make us feel more fulfilled and give us a greater sense of meaning. And Hansa, if you could respond to what we just heard, you know, when we hear you say that, you know, structure is important for kids, but you don't want to overdo it. Yes, absolutely. And I do agree with the speaker that, you know, how we spend our time is really important. Structure is important, but I'm not talking about activities necessarily. I'm talking about structure where you do have family time and you do take time to pause and to activate what I call the parasympathetic system. For example, the parasympathetic system is the actual opposite of the sympathetic system, which we talk about sometimes with the flight or flight response. And often we're running around with that overactivated and what we actually need to do is activate the parasympathetic system which can actually bring not only our mental health um, to calmness but also affect our physical health so specifically things that activate our parasympathetic system are actually deep breathing like we um what we heard about but also just a hug or being with family or being with people around these are the things that actually make us feel better and that that needs to be structured into our day so whether it's taking the time you know um every day to have a like sit down with family and hug and talk time or whether it's deep breathing or whether it's actually taking time uh, on the weekend for two or three hours to actually have that time with nothing to do those are all things that actually activate our parasympathetic system and it's just so essential to to be able to do that I mentioned your book coming out in March, Building Happier Kids and some stress-busting tools for parents. Can you give us some more takeaways? Absolutely. And so one of the takeaways I really talk about is actually, and, and I have takeaways for every chapter, um, so I'll, I'll focus on three <laughs> of them. So one, so one is the media fast. And you know this is really, really important. Nobody can handle bad news 24 seven. And, and unfortunately, that's what's happening right now. And so I really strongly recommend media fast. And that's not just for kids, but parents too, because if parents are stressed out, believe me, those kids are actually feeling your stress. They absolutely absorb, absorb everything. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing that I highly recommend is actually making sure you have time for connection. And that's exactly like having those that inner circle and connecting to them several times a week, even if it's just for a walk outside, uh, you know, that's really important. So the connection is really, really important. And lastly, I would say, you know, having that perspective that, you know, things can go wrong, but it's okay. That, you know, things are transient. If a bad thing happens, then that, you know, that's something that's gonna go away. And, you know, having that positive outlook on life it, you know, it's, it's, it's actually really, really important. I'll just point to one study that was really interesting. I am also a cognitive-based uh, compassion training teacher, which I trained at at Emory University. And that program, I teach it to medical students to decrease their stress, Lucy. And um, what we found was just taking that pause or doing that meditation or deep breathing, only 10 minutes, three times a week, actually decrease their IL-6 levels, which is an inflammatory chemical that goes into the blood that can affect blood pressure and, you know, has a, a cancer risk and everything in your body. So taking the, activating that parasympathetic system, whether it's pausing or hugging or giving your pet a hug, really matters in our mental health and our physical health. 
Those are some good uh, takeaways for us, Hansa. I wanted to share, uh, Judy uh, wrote on Facebook that she belongs to a brunch bunch, a woman's running club that began in 1988. They've slowed down over the years, but they still meet every Saturday morning, run or walk, and they have breakfast. Movement and companionship are the things that she gets out of this uh, particular activity and what's important to her emotional state. And that's important, right? The relationships that we also have it's so important, Lucy. I'm so glad you brought that up. And that was one thing that we seem to have lost over the pandemic uh, with the social distancing. It was also social isolation. And, and that has contributed to one of the biggest mental health crises of our time. So in terms of preventative mental health, the connection is so important and community is really important. Like that's what I, you know, that that's what I refer to as our circles of care, you know, connection, community, and also compassion to others actually the giver actually receives as well. Uh, so when you go out and you are kind to other people, you actually get kind of an elevated mood as well. So those are just really, really important. And yes, absolutely. The connection community. I love the running club idea. Again, you've been hearing Dr. Hansa Bargava, Chief Medical Officer at Medscape, author of Building Happier Kids, Stress-Busting Tools for Parents, that book coming out in March. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. Listen to us anytime on your favorite podcast app. And tomorrow the show will be preempted by NPR special coverage on January 6th. We hope you return on Friday. <laughs>